morning. You guys can hear me, right? Good? All right. Yeah, my title is Church Planning Resident. That's okay. Um, One thing, if you guys know Steve Huber, is director of our network, one thing I joke around with him, every time he introduces me, I have a new title, because he can never get it right, even though he's the one who wrote the job description, and yet he's not here so we can make fun of him, um, because we love him like that. Let's pray, and uh, we'll dive in to scripture together. Father, we are so, so grateful um, for who you are and what you have done for us. Uh, We are a very blessed people. Um, We have more than many around the world have. Our resources are endless. Today, Lord, we do not have to worry about what we'll eat for lunch because we know that we'll be able to find it. We don't have to worry about walking out on our streets because we know that our streets are relatively safe. And so we pray for the people in our world that do not get to experience that day after day. Lord, we pray... As many will pray today that you will be present with us here. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, may these not be my words, but your words. May these not be my thoughts, but your thoughts. May we be truthful and honoring towards your word. And may we know that we are approaching the word of the God of the universe. But that same God desires to call each and every one of us his friend, his child, his beloved son. We pray this in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. So yeah, I'm a church planning resident, uh, part of the Liberty Network. I attend Liberty East, which is in the Fishtown section of Philadelphia, which I'm now realizing this is not the trend here. So I'm not in Philadelphia anymore. I don't have cool boots to wear, which I noticed that there's a lot of boots floating around, or flip-flops, or spurries, which I don't have. So donation, please, afterwards. Um, at Liberty East, uh, I do many, many things, um, but mostly what I'm doing is planning to plant a church in the northeast section of Philadelphia. The northeast section of Philadelphia is quickly approaching half a million people, so Philadelphia overall is 1.5 million. That's a third of the people in Philadelphia will be living shortly in northeast Philadelphia. And there's all these reasons for that. Mostly it's because the, fa- the white families are moving out and the families of color are moving into northeast Philadelphia and they're generally larger than the white families that have left. Okay, so that you kind of just see the growth. So once there was a family of four, now there's a family of six and grandmom all living together in the same home and so population keeps spiking. Ph- northeast Philadelphia is also at this point now the most underserved section of Philadelphia and it is also the most underchurched section of Philadelphia. And so it's a large task. There's a lot of people who need to know about Jesus. And so we are working where my wife and I were born and raised 
in northeast Philadelphia, and we're working to get to know people there so we can eventually plant a church there. So if you could be praying for us, if you could, uh, if you know people who live in northeast Philadelphia, it would be very unusual if you did, please tell them about us. Uh, Matt can make a connection for, for you if need be. I'm also joined by my daughter Giselle today, so you'll see her. If you see like an eight-year-old little girl grabbing at my leg, that is my child. So do not be concerned. All right? But thanks to Matt for having me here. Uh, really enjoy coming when I get to. Really love being part of the Trinitarian Buckheads. Uh, as you know, many churches, they represent the Trinity by three candles. You guys do it with the Bucks, and I really appreciate that. It's a good time. We're surrounded by the three Bucks. We're actually going to be in Mark 15 today, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, I actually screwed up. Um, I thought I had a little bit longer part of the Apostles' Creed, which included the resurrection of Jesus, so that's why your, your bulletins say 1 Corinthians 15, but we actually are going to be discussing the part where it talks about that Jesus, let's see if I can remember it from memory, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and he descended to the dead, which some translations of the Apostles' Creed will say descended to hell. We'll talk about that briefly. But that's where we're going to be, and the title of my talk is called Rethinking Death, Hell, and My Sunday Afternoon. Friday, my family and I returned from vacation from Sandy Cove Ministries and Conference Center. Anybody ever been to Sandy Cove? Okay, good. I was afraid like one of you would raise your hand and then only one of us had the connection. So we just returned from there. It's a lovely place on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Uh, we had gorgeous weather. My kids had a blast. They really do a great job of giving you space to grow spiritually and relationally with, within your family and personally. And they have a pool, and they take care of you. All your meals are taken care of. I mean, moms love this, right? You don't have to cook anything. They clean your room every day. It's great. It's it's fabulous. They have speakers that really um, get to the heart of kind of where we are as Christians and where we need to be. And there's activities. It's a really awesome time. I used to go there all the time when I was a kid, from like being in diapers to college. Um, at some point in that transition, I transitioned out of the diapers. Um, you can f- decide when that is, but in college I was not wearing diapers, so we're cool. But in college I stopped going, and so it was the first time I actually took my family there, um, my wife and my three kids, um, and we really started to kind of get the culture of Sandy Cove, which one thing is really interesting that we discovered. About Tuesday at dinner, we discovered that if you don't get to dinner on time, all the good pie is gone. Because what everybody does, they go, they go through the buffet line, they get all their food, and their dessert table, and everyone puts their plates down, and they go get the good pie and bring it back. And I started to catch on to this when I realized that I was eating yesterday's pie that nobody wanted yesterday for dessert, and everyone around me has this really good-looking pie. You know, there's this one, like, mountainous Oreo ice cream pie that I really had my eyes on that I couldn't get because I came late to dinner. And so I decided, you know what, guys? We need to get to dinner on time. Dinner's at 5.15. So we're like, it takes like, we calculate about five minutes to get up to dinner. So we're like, all right, 5.10, guys. Everybody grab your stuff. Let's go. And we run up to dinner. Uh, and we get there in line. And the good pie's there. And we're like, yes, 
some good pies there. Everyone's cool. The kids are happy. There's, you know, desserts for them as well that they really like that are still there and not everyone is taken. And we kind of figure that out for subsequent dinners. Now, the challenge of having dessert at the table is more of a challenge than I anticipated. Right? And parents get this. That if the dessert is at the table, what does everybody focus on eating? Dessert, right? Dessert is there, Dad. Why can we have our dessert? It's calling them. It's beckoning them. It's wooing them. And it's wooing me, too. And I'm eating my meal while I'm looking at my dessert. And the problem is that there's this constant draw to jump to the dessert before I enjoy my meal. And parents will know this, and kids, this is true. If you eat your dessert first, you will ruin your appetite, you will, be, you will fill up, your body will break that down so quickly that about 15 minutes later you're asking mom and dad for snacks, and mom and dad are saying, we already f- tried to feed you and you ate your dessert first. You remember this? And so this is kind of the draw that we're, we were drawn to eat the dessert First, it's at the table calling us. We said we wanted to skip our meals or eat as quickly as we can so we can get the dessert. And oftentimes that's how we treat Jesus' death and resurrection. We go, oh, that's great, Jesus died, but don't worry, dessert's at the other end of the table. We'll get the dessert. And so we quickly get to that part with the resurrection. And even our songs do this. And not to pick on before the throne of God above, but if you notice, the part about the death of Jesus is very soft and quiet and mellow. But then, the risen lamb part, we start, the bass starts picking up, the drums start kicking in, it gets a little bit louder, right? Because that's a really exciting part, but we don't want to jump to that part too quickly. We don't want to jump to the resurrection too quickly. And that's why the Apostles' Creed builds up to that. It wants us to focus on the parts of Jesus' life where he suffered, died, and was buried. And where he descended to the dead. So today, as we turn to Mark 15, we're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about the false hope that the world's powers give us. We're also going to see in this passage, we're going to spend some time talking about human suffering, but mostly talk about the suffering of Jesus. And the third thing we're going to talk about is the hope that the follower, that followers of Jesus have in Him. And now some of you here this morning may not be quite sure that you believe this Christianity thing yet, right? You're kind of searching it out, you're feeling it out, and you're like, into this Jesus thing, but I kind of like these people. There seems to be a lot of like grace and love floating around in the room, so I like to be here on Sunday mornings. I like to participate in things, but I'm not quite sure that I'm there yet. And oftentimes, many people who do not follow Jesus, and this may be you, that one of your biggest hang-ups is when Christians talk about suffering. Because a lot of times, Christians, and we can admit this, we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Right? We're so focused on heaven, we're so focused on the resurrection that we're no earthly good when it comes to suffering. We're always pushing people to remember the hope that we have. Quickly getting to that point. And that may be one of your hang-ups. But before you check out, let me encourage you in this way. Jesus does not mess around about suffering. 
Jesus cares that you suffer. Jesus cares that the world suffers. Jesus cares that the world is in pain. Not only does he empathize with it, he experienced it, he enters it, and he sits with us in it. And Jesus is also very much concerned, and we cannot hide behind, but we cannot hide this point, that Jesus desires to save everyone from the ultimate form of suffering, which would be eternal separation from God the Father. So let's read. We're going to read through Mark 15. It's a long passage, but we're going to do our best to get through it. So if you could look at Mark 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over the Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, that being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's stop right there. This week has been a particularly hard week in terms of suffering. Here at home, in America, and abroad. There's some big things in the news they were already mentioned earlier today. But some other things... Lawyer named Willie who fought against sex trafficking and dirty cops in Kenya whose body was found. He went missing. Months later, they find his body. Then about 300 people died from a bombing in Baghdad by the Islamic State. It's a pretty rough world, right? But at this point, it hasn't really touched us yet. But then later in the week, two young African-American men, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, were killed by police. And then, five police officers were murdered while stationed at a protest. Just protecting the protesters, protecting the people of the city, were just sniped and killed. And our hearts should break for all these families. Right? Our hearts should break for Lily Kamani's family, for the 300 people who died in Baghdad, for 
Alton Sterling's family, for Philando Castillo's family, for the five officers' families. I mean, kids are waking up today without their dads. I mean, that should break our hearts. And the church, Christians are called to mourn with these people. The church is not called to take sides in these moments, but to sit beside people. And amongst the rhetoric we find in our world and we find here in Mark 15, there's this false hope that the world's power is given. And here we see, in this passage, we see Jesus run across politicians and religion. Politicians seek to address suffering in a certain way. They try to, see, they try to address suffering by pacifying the loudest voices and those who give them power. But we see this in the passage. What does Pilate want to do? Why does he kill Jesus? He wants to satisfy the crowd. That's why he does it. And he can't really wash his hands. In other Gospels, Pilate washes his hands like he's cool. He can't, he can't get away with that. Like he can't, we can't just say, oh yeah, you wash your hands. You're cool, Pilate. You figured it out how to get out of this one. No, he's very much a part of this. He's seeking to keep himself in control and power. Pilate is this um, Roman governor that his whole job is to really keep the Jewish people under wraps. Right? They're pretty upset. They're not really enjoying the Romans occupying them. People just don't really like that. right? They don't really like people telling them what to do. The Romans weren't really that nice. They did a lot of messed up things. And Pilate was there really just kind of keep things under control. So in a sense, he's doing his job by satisfying the crowds. You want to kill Jesus, the man who did nothing? No problem. So let me give you a murderer back on the streets. That's how much he wants to satisfy we saw a lot of that this week, right? You ever notice this about politicians? You ever notice that you aren't that surprised at what side they take? Think about it. I'm never surprised by the side Republicans take. I'm never surprised by the side Democrats take. I'm never, ever surprised. I know what they're going to say before they say it. Why? Because they want to satisfy the crowds and the people who give them power. That's how politicians typically handle suffering. It's because they're not as much interested in giving us answers, but about pacifying their supporters. And there are good politicians, there are people who love Jesus, who are in politics, and that not everyone's like that, but the culture of politics is very much like that. And then if we think we're going to get out of it, where's the religious in this passage? The chief priests, what's their deal? I mean, the, it's out of envy they want to kill Jesus, right? It says that. Pilate perceives it. Everyone knows it. Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. The chief priests would rather a murderer be on the street than to have Jesus walking around telling everybody things that they don't agree with. Religions ultimately, any attempt that humanity makes to save themselves by doing things rightly or through moral effort. Religion seeks to address suffering by justifying oneself and vilifying the victims 
suggesting that if you kept all the rules, you wouldn't suffer. If Jesus would have kept his mouth shut and just followed the rules, he's, he's walking around talking way too much about this grace stuff. That's craziness. Jesus, we have rules. If we start talking to people about grace, they're going to do whatever they want. If we talk, oh, love everyone, Jesus. Jesus, they're just going to start doing whatever they want. They're going to love everybody. Everybody's going to get away with stuff, Jesus. We can't have you doing that. And so if you just kept the rules, Jesus, this would never happen to you. We're on God's side because we keep the rules. The religious leaders, they justify their own actions, their own way of life, and vilify Jesus because he doesn't quite keep the rules as they have interpreted them. And for some of us, that's our experience with Christianity. People who follow Jesus is the people who know the rules, keep the rules, and they're always right. The holier than thou people, right? Not that rules are always bad. We sometimes we need rules, and God gives us lots of commands. But the people who He always knows the religious people are the people. This may be your experience. The holier than thou people are the people who know the rules, keep the rules, and God is happy with them for keeping the rules. Unlike you, who doesn't keep the rules. And we saw a lot of that this week, too. Religion doesn't have to be people who follow a certain faith. You can be a religious person based on a certain position you have. A certain opinion you have. You can be religious about that opinion. You believe your opinion is the one that justifies you, vilifies everyone else, because you have a higher standard of morality than everybody else. You're a good person. You keep all the rules. And so everyone should be happy with you. God should be happy with you. And everyone who's against you, if they would have just kept the rules, none of this would have happened. But neither politicians or religion provide us the answers we need. Because we don't need people like that. When suffering comes, do you really need somebody to remind you about all the rules? When suffering comes, do you really need somebody to tell you what they already believe in the first place and to satisfy their supporters? Do you really need that? Is that what our world really needs? Is more politicians and more religious people? Grace is different than that. Jesus is different than that. We don't need people who stand far off, who sit back and pacify supporters, or people who espouse a God who only cares about being people who are in good moral standing. We don't need a God like that either, who's like a politician who stands far off and washes his hands and lets the world go to crap while we just kind of figure things out. We don't need a God like that. And we don't need a God who's religious, who just keep these rules, guys, and everything will work out for you. It's this formula, A plus B equals C. If you do A and B, you'll get this great reward. C. But we need a God to enter our mess. Sit back and think about that for a second. When you're suffering, when you're going through hard times, when the world is suffering, do you really need a God who's like a politician? Or God who's like the chief priest. Do 
you need more pilots in your life? Do you need more chief priests in your life? Do you need a God who's like that? No. You need a God who will enter it. And so as we keep reading, the Roman soldiers, they mock Jesus. They put a purple cloak on him, which is a sign of royalty. And they put a a crown of thorns on him, rather than like a a nice crown that that would hurt, right? It's very painful. And they salute him as the king of the Jews, and they hit him, and they spit on him. And in verse 25, there was the third hour when they crucified him. And with... Oh, excuse me. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Oloi, Oloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Here we start seeing this suffering of Jesus. It would be... We would sell the Apostles' Creed short if we just focused on the suffering as just starting... At Jesus' crucifixion. Because Jesus suffered his whole life, right? It's not like the first 14 chapters of Mark don't really matter all that much. Right? That Mark should have just started right here. But Jesus suffered his whole life. There's this part in Mark chapter 1, it's a really interesting story, where Jesus heals a leper, right? And one thing you don't do in the ancient world is touch a leper, or interact with a leper. Because once you touch a leper in that world, you are now unclean. And Jesus suffers in a certain way that he gets exiled to the, to the places outside of the city. It actually says that Jesus can know, Jesus because he touched the leper, the leper can go back into the city because he's healed, but Jesus can't. And so he has to spend his time in the desolate places outside of the city. He's exiled. He's away from his family and friends. He can't go back to the city. He suffers in that way. He suffers in many other ways where people question him. There's other points where people try to kill him with stones, right? And he like ducks out of there some some great way. I don't know. I mean like if everyone's holding stones and we're trying to stone Matt, I think we would know where Matt is. Somehow Jesus gets out of there. Don't stone Matt. Just want to make that clear. But here he's scourged and he's mocked. He's abandoned. Where's Jesus' friends? Where's the guys, the, the cool dudes, the twelve? Well, we know where the one, the Judas, is actually is not around anymore. He betrayed Jesus and he kind of bounced. But there's eleven guys. There's eleven other guys. Where's Peter? Where's James? Where's John? Where's the guys that Jesus 
poured into. Shouldn't they be there? When you're best, when you're suffering, where should your best friend be? Right next to you. But they're gone. They're scared. He's abandoned. And verse 40 tells us that there were women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. That's it. Jesus pours. Where's the 5,000 people he fed? Where's the woman he healed from the bleeding? Where's she? You suffer. You need people around you who love you. Even Job's friends would be better than this. Right? At least they were there. And he dies a criminal's death. It's actually insurrectionist death, right? That word uh, for thieves is actually more like rebels, insurrectionists. This is how Rome treats insurrectionists. You stand up against Rome, Rome humiliates you. They kill you by putting you on a cross. And he dies this death. There are some faiths that discount that Jesus died on a cross, right? We have Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus died on a cross. Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on a cross. And there's some that he even suggested that crucifixion was not even part of the Romans' way of executing people. But the Bible is true, right? We believe the Bible as Christians. And there's actually bones now in a museum in Israel that actually have uh, marks of crucifixion on them, right? There's actually like the feet have a nail through them, right? That we now can say, based on archaeology, that this is actually a way that the Romans killed people. It's a brutal way, right? Crucifixion was intentionally brutal. And not only did they just nail you to a cross, right? That would hurt in and of itself. But up to that point, they humiliate you. They make it your life miserable, intentionally miserable. They made a law where you can't whip somebody 40 times. So what they used to do is whip somebody 39 times. And it's not like what your dad would spank you with a belt, right? Maybe that's not cool to say anymore, but this Harrisburg, I think you guys are still cool maybe with spanking. But it's not like when, your dad, when my dad would spank me with a belt, he wouldn't take it to me 39 times. That would hurt cat of nine tails. This is a whip that had nine strings on the end that had pieces of glass and stone in it. And so when they would whip it at you, it would wrap around your body, grab you, dig into you. And so when they snapped it back, you can imagine. And they nail your hands and feet to the cross. They publicly humiliate you. And, you, and you're at a point where you're hanging on the cross like just trying to breathe is difficult. And you're there for hours and hours and hours just trying to breathe. In the part of the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended to the dead. Um, many, many have used that. Um, that's actually a more recent translation to descended to the dead. Up to you know, a certain amount of centuries. is actually descended to hell. There's this belief that was added in about the 3rd or 4th century that part of the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended to hell. And I think why a lot of us kind of have transitioned to uh, descended to the dead is because we start taking this a little bit more metaphorically. That Jesus did not actually descend into hell, but that Jesus experienced hell. If hell is separation from the Father, Jesus experiences that on the cross. My God, my God, why are you forsaken? Jesus experiences a hell-like moment on the cross.
And even though we may treat this metaphorically, hell is a real place. And we have to acknowledge that. As followers of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that hell is a real place. And those who do not follow Jesus, who do not put their faith in Him, will experience eternal separation from the Father. And Jesus feels that. Because Jesus is bearing the sin and the guilt of the world on Himself. Your sin, my sin, was on Jesus on the cross. And so God the Father was separated from Him. Jesus felt forsaken by Him. And Jesus experienced suffering like us and then some. Some of us have... Some people in the world, probably not us, have experienced suffering way beyond this, right? And beaten up multiple times, black Christians, other countries, experience these types of things. Many of us have not. And one thing I find to be particularly funny as a Philadelphia sports fan is that we love to know that you've experienced pain like us, right? And we love to know that before we allow you into our lives for Cleveland because they won the NBA championship right they suffered a really long time just like us Philadelphia fans so we could be happy for them but we have no room for you Pittsburgh fans or definitely not Boston Boston has a parade like every three months Pittsburgh the Penguins and the Steelers they just keep winning we have no real patience for them because as Philadelphians we want to know that you suffered like Here we see Jesus suffers like us. All of us, if we have not already, will experience pain and suffering. That might be loss of a loved one. I lost my mom about three years ago to cancer. That hurt, man. That may be actually like getting abused physically, maybe sexually abused. That may be a number of things, but all of us will experience pain and suffering. And isn't it wonderful on some level to know that God experienced that too? If you aren't a Christian, the problem of suffering may be a hang-up for you. But the Bible never gives us a clear answer why suffering happens. There's some clues there. But the Bible does tell us that God in Christ experienced suffering and pain just like us. He doesn't run from it. The suffering of of Jesus shows that God is not a God who stands far off in the distance allowing us to figure out our own mess, but a God who enters our mess and suffers like we do. Jesus experienced all the pain, the mocking, the abandonment, the feeling that the world is out of control, the feeling of being forsaken by God, the feeling of being separate from God, like we all feel when we suffer. And Jesus didn't run from it. He enters it. And he doesn't empathize. It would be one thing if God empathized. Like, oh man, that's re- I'm really sorry you had to go through that. No, God in Jesus experienced it. So God in Jesus doesn't run from the pain of Willie Kamani's family and friends. He doesn't run from the pain 
of the families in Baghdad. He doesn't run from the pain and fear that our African American friends, brothers, neighbors, sisters are feeling this week and have felt for way too long. He doesn't run from that. And he doesn't run from five families feel this morning because they lost their dads while they were serving their city. He doesn't run from that. Due to his experience on the cross, God in Jesus is able to enter our pain. And not only does he enter it, let me just blow your mind for a second. He chose to do it. You ever think about that? That Jesus chose to do this? That God chose to do it this way? He could have done it any other way. He could have dealt with sin and death and suffering in any other way. But he chose to do it like the way we would go through. When God desires to be with us, to be like us, to live like us, he chooses to experience all of what this means to us, to be like us. And as we continue reading in Mark 15, verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So what does this mean for my Sunday afternoon? So at some point this service will end, we'll all go out, and some of you will go to lunch, some of you will go to barbecues, some of you will go to in covenant class, which you should if you have not. But what hope do we have in the death of Jesus? What hope do we have that Jesus experienced hell on the cross? What hope do we have that Jesus suffered just like us? From Mark 15, we see that the followers of Jesus have hope because of three, three things. First, we have access to God. It's not by coincidence that Mark mentions that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The curtain in the temple separates just standard laity people from the Holy of Holies where God was supposed to be present. Only the priest, the high priest, was able to enter that place. The curtain divides people from that place. And so what's God doing? He's saying, now that Jesus died, you have access to me. You don't need a priest to go in. You have access directly to me because of what Jesus has done. We no longer need separation. We don't need a curtain to block us from each other. Because of Jesus, you can come right to me. we can do that through prayer and His Holy Spirit who lives in those who have faith in Jesus. And John 1.12 tells us, But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. I don't know what your relationship was like with your parents, but my parents were very loving. When I came to my parents, they didn't go, Hold up, let me just put this curtain up for a second. Now we can talk. Okay, go ahead. What's the problem? Why did your brother hit you? Right? No, sat with me. Good, loving parents do that. They sit with their children. The children have direct access to their parents. And we can have that because of Jesus. Secondly, all the nations are invited in. Anyone can be part of God's family. 
Salvation is not just for those who are part of Israel. This is the beautiful thing about the centurion's declaration. In Mark, there's only three people who mention that Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father from heaven, Jesus' baptism. Peter mentions it kind of randomly in the middle of Mark. Kind of like just stumbles upon this revelation that's kind of Peter's thing. He just blurts out stuff and Jesus is like, yeah, you got it, man. And the centurion, that's it. There's only three people who mention it in the whole book of Mark. And the beautiful thing about this, what Mark's pointing out to us is the Romans get it. This guy who shouldn't get it about Jesus gets it. The chief priests don't get it. They're mocking him. The people who should, the people who are God's chosen people of Israel, they should get it, but they're too busy mocking him. But the centurion gets it. Now Mark's showing us that means everyone can be part of the family of God. Salvation from sin and death, salvation is not just for people who believe what you and I believe, who are on the same side of the pole as you and I believe, who vote for the same people as I believe, who have the same stance on the Second Amendment as you and I. Jesus says, family's big enough for everyone. Put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you come from, what your political position is. It doesn't matter. You can follow me. Be part of my family. And lastly, and this is where I kind of want to end, is God chooses to switch places with sinful humanity. And we can be reconciled to him. That's the point of Barabbas. Barabbas is not just like an afterthought. Oh yeah, this guy Barabbas. Barabbas, that's the point. Jesus switches places with Barabbas. God chooses to switch places with the ugliest, most sinful person he could find and chooses to switch places with him. It wasn't like the guy who stole a a pack of gum from Rite Aid, right? It's the guy who tried to kill a bunch of people and did kill a bunch of people. Barabbas, God chooses Barabbas and says, let's switch places. And God says that to you and me. He says, let's switch places. You deserve sin and death. You deserve death and hell and everything that came with comes with it. You deserve that. I deserve it because of my sin. And God says, let's switch places. One author puts it this way. To be a man means to be so situated in God's presence as Jesus is. That is, to be the bearer of the wrath of God. It belongs to us, that end on the gallows. Yet, that is not the final thing. Neither man's rebellion nor God's wrath. But the deepest mystery of God is this, that God himself in the man Jesus does not avoid taking the place of sinful man and being that which man is, a rebel and bearing the suffering of such a one to be God's self. God chooses to be the entire guilt and the entire reconciliation. That is what God has done in Jesus. So what's he saying? He's saying the mystery is that God in Christ doesn't avoid taking our place. He chooses it. The 
follower of Jesus is then called to spread that same good news to others, to push back darkness and remind everyone that they can experience the same thing. And so there's been a lot of suffering this week. Suffering on the news and maybe even suffering in your own life. There's been a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, weeping, and heartache. While politicians may do their best to keep their hands clean, while the religious may seek to justify their own selves, Jesus, Jesus enters into your pain, my pain, and He ultimately takes our place as sinful, rebellious human beings so that all those who put their faith in Jesus, no matter what you look like or where you come from, can have access to God, can be part of His family, and be free from sin and reconciled to God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. I don't know what better way to say it than that. For what He's done for us. Thank you for forgiving us, for loving us, not looking at us and saying, I don't want to be a part of that, but saying, I choose that. Thank you for choosing me, Lord. Thank you for choosing those in this room who put your faith, their faith in you. We thank you for Liberty Harrisburg. We thank you for Liberty Network. And may we be a people that spread this good news about what Jesus has done. In his name we pray. Amen.